0: everyone and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors of this episode. Chargebee is the leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups such as Hopkins, Spendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is the digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt Estonia has many advantages for early state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Ichaso Del Palacio, partner at Notion Capital. She joined Notion in 2018 from M12, formerly Microsoft Ventures, where she launched their UK office and led investments in Unfido, Beamery, and Unbabel. Her journey into the world of VC has been quite unconventional, which has included a decade of classical ballet, working at an assembly line at Daimler, Chrysler, and an MA in engineering and a PhD in entrepreneurship. I am delighted to have Ichaso on my show today. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Anita. Thank you for inviting me to join
0: you today. Excellent. So I thought we could start off with Notion and what's Notion's focus areas the stage that they focus in, and anything that differentiates Notion from other VCs in Europe. Mm-hmm. We are a
1: venture capital firm uh, based in London, HQD in, Lon- in London, but uh, we do invest across Europe. We are focused on Series A businesses and we invest only in B2B SaaS cloud. We are very focused on this in this sector. And I think that's one of the differentiators of our fund. Basically, we haven't done any marketplace investment. We haven't done any consumer investment. Very much focused on B2B and cloud. Our core stage is Series A. We've done a few Series B and a little bit earlier stages two. And we can talk a little bit about that later, which I think it's, it's good to mention because today the Series A, Series B, doesn't mean anything at the end of the day. So exactly. I think it be good for the audience to, to clarify that. A little bit later, we can go in deep on that. Yeah, I think that, that is one of the main differentiators. And the other differentiator I would say is that based on our focus uh, and taking into account that the, the 100 companies that we've invested in over the years in Europe are all in B2B SaaS, we are able to provide very specialized support to those companies because all of them go through the same processes through the zero to one million in revenue in ARR, one to 10 million, 10 to 50 and 50 plus. But as all of them are B2B SaaS, it is very easy for us to standardize this support that we give to the companies in all those stages. So I think that is very much uh, unique for Notion and so we have a dedicated team in our platform, which basically helps our companies grow and works alongside the investment team so that we can help our companies grow much faster.
0: Your introduction just made me think of something important that you said, which is this, you've, you seem to have figured out a formula almost for helping B2B SaaS companies grow through those very critical stages maybe we could focus our podcast today on understanding what you do in each of those stages. What do you feel is important? Yeah. Let's, let's assume
1: we are at around that 1 million in ARR. It is not necessarily 1 million because the reality is that many founders ask me, so what is the minimum revenue that you need uh, to see to be able to invest? And I don't like to talk only about a, a number in revenue. Imagine you had a 1 million revenue business, ARR business. But last year, you had 3 million in ARR, which means that you, in fact, lost. Two million. That is yeah. not a good sign. And yes, you were at one million ARR, but you lost uh, basically two million. You had charged yeah. for two million, so that makes no sense. Or you come to me and you have one million in revenue, and you just have one customer. Who's paying for 1 million in revenue, which is uh, not great because obviously that doesn't show to me that there is a product market fit. So Mm -hmm. I like to talk, instead of talking about red revenue when we do the investment, we like to talk about that point in which we can see there is already a product market fit. And there is that Mm -hmm. inflection point in which the entrepreneurs already have figured out who is that ideal customer profile. And they are able Mm -hmm. to approach those and to outbound, to go outbound, to reach those customers. And it's not necessarily that all businesses need to grow through outbound, but be able to to build them a marketing strategy and a sales strategy very much targeted to that ideal customer profile. And so we like Mm -hmm. to talk about the point where customers have reached product market fit, and that is not necessarily identified by the revenue, but rather by the traction and the identification of that ideal customer profile, in which we come in and we can help them scale, basically build an engine that I can help them scale and build that revenue to the 10 million and beyond.
0: I love the way you said it. It's not about the revenue. It's about showing that you're able to repeatedly sell a solution or a product to a certain ICP Ex- and you've been able to do it more than one time, that is what shows you product market fit. And now you're ready to scale. And that's where Notion can really help.
1: Exactly. That is what okay. we do and how okay. we work with the founders.
0: Okay. Excellent. All right. So let's assume I'm a company like that. I've shown you product market fit. You guys are excited about what I'm doing. And now I'm part of the Notion family. What kind of support? Can I look forward to a notion? How will you help me create that engine?
1: Excellent. So there are two main things that we work with the companies. One is building the scalable revenue engine. To date, we are assuming with a seed round that sales have been very much founder led in most of the cases, right? And so right. we need to build a team that scales that revenue engine, right? That sales engine. And so we really focused on, on setting up that go to market, Market strategy and growth strategy. So that's one of the things that we help with and we can replicate that in different companies. And the second one that we really help with, which is very much related with the first one is hiring, recruitment. Mm -hmm. How do you build your team in order to deliver that growth? And that is not only on sales and marketing, but also on product and technology, because the product Mm -hmm. and the technology, which needs to be scalable enough to be able to work with the customers and to become also a global product because there is a lot of yep. localization on those products. And obviously one of the things that most of our companies do just after we invest is they they tend to go to the U.S. So the U.S. is yeah. still the biggest market for SaaS businesses. And so we have a very well-defined playbook for companies in Europe to go to the U.S. We have helped most of our founders going into the U.S. And so that is uh, something that we helped definitely just after putting the money in.
0: Honestly, this is the most critical thing that they talk about. The product market fit, they're in their comfort zone. It's all about the product and it's about finding the right person that values the product. That's in their comfort zone. But this go-to-market strategy and figuring out who to hire first, who to hire second, and how to build that machine in an efficient way is the part that is overwhelming for founders. Maybe you can give me one or two different use cases or examples of how you built that that initial team based on the strategies For sure.
1: So um, in general, and I will go into a couple of examples to write after, but in general, we are big believers of hiring what we call game changers. So... People who come into the company and they contribute in such a way to the growth and the performance that the company itself and the founders themselves would not have been able to uh, deliver in a short period of time. And I always tell founders, look, I have no doubt you might be able to figure that out in 6 8 months by yourself because i trust you are the smart and and you work very hard but probably you will make mistakes on the on on the way there you will spend a lot of your cash in 6 8 months and still you will not be specific and you will not be 100% sure that you are developing the right steps to build that go-to-market strategy. And so what we do is we look at who can be these people who have been there already. Experienced Mm -hmm. people who have already done this once, twice. And so they are going to come and in a month, they are going to basically establish all of this because they've done it before. They've made the mistakes before in previous companies. And now they are not going to make those mistakes anymore in your company. So do you want to be waiting six, eight months to make that work? Or do you want to bring someone in? And so what we do is that when we show you benchmarks in other companies, people in that role that are what you should aim for. Because many times founders, they don't know what they want. They didn't what they need because they haven't been there before. which is absolutely fine. And so we have... companies in the portfolio where we can show them examples. And I give you a very clear example that we use in many cases. And uh, the company bubble. I invested in the company, in fact, when I was at M12, Microsoft Ventures before, before I joined Notion. And Notion was already an investor in Series A. By the time I invested in the company in Series B from Microsoft, Notion has done so much work with them. And one of the things that they did very well is that they brought a very experienced CRO, the chief revenue Mm. officer. And it doesn't mean that the company didn't have over 1 million, almost 2 million in revenue, but that those revenues were coming from customers who were very different from each other. It was very Mm. difficult to scale that. And it was difficult for Mm. the founder. They were Sales led by the founder, very difficult to identify who was exactly the ideal customer profile and how much were they willing to pay. So we helped the company define the the chief revenue officer they needed. And we introduced them, in fact, to the guy who became the the chief revenue officer until almost uh, these days. And that has been for five years. The the chief revenue officer has built the company to over 20, 25 million, 30 million in revenue, right? And Mm. they were 2 million. And now is the time to find a new CRO that has already experienced building companies to that 100 million. Right. So we take that chief revenue officer and we move it to another company which is a two million in revenue because guess what? All our companies are assessed. And so they are going to be able to do exactly the same thing in that new company and build that company to 30 million. We are not going to let go this amazing talent. And so we move people around and now we bring here a new CRO who can bring this company to the 100 million because in general, these game changers or these um, experienced executives, they are very much focused on on a stage of a company. And that is absolutely fine. And that's why you need to know when to rotate these people and we help them on that. So that's, just one example but we work with many companies like that
0: i love that and i've definitely heard that for different stages of the company you need a different type of person and a skill set but you said the first hire was cro is that normally your first hire that you recommend to founders cro and can you define for me what is a cro's responsibility is he mainly a sales guy that finds this ICP and creates a process for repeatable sales? Or is he like a marketing person? Tell me a little bit more about in Notion's world, what a CRO does.
1: Yeah, that's a very good question, Anita. And um, in reality, not all the companies need a CRO. If that would be the case, this would be very. Easy. We take a company and yes, every company, when we invest, they, they get a CRO in place. No, that's not the case. This was a specific case of a company which already had some salespeople, already had some good sales traction, and they needed somebody experienced to structure that and to manage that. I don't think you do need a CRO in many mm-hmm. cases. Just yes. So we need to look on case-by-case case basic. We don't get there and we are like, hey, this is a copycat. If it will be a copycat, this will be very easy, but it is not. So I don't think we should use the word CRO as, an, as a needed role just after the service say mm-hmm. it can be ahead of sales. For example, yep. it's not necessarily, yep. but in this company specifically, they had already some salespeople and they had Got to it. structure that that process, and it was a CRO. But in general, when we are building the sales team, we in fact recommend the companies to go a little bit lower than the CRO. Not to, you don't need mm-hmm. a CRO usually. You probably maybe a head of sales or a VP sales in some cases, but a head of, of sales yeah. should be enough to start building a small go-to-market team. And that a head of sales, as the word suggests, is, is usually somebody who gets their hands pretty dirty still on, on, on bringing leads and, uh, and starting to sell to them. Usually they start building an SDR team, a, a small SDR team, but they start doing yep. some outbound to some marketing to generate some leads. And that head of sales usually gets their hands pretty dirty and, and and they are on the spot talking to customers too, for sure. Just after service sales.
0: What about marketing? When does marketing come in and who is usually the first hires in marketing that you recommend? Do you bring in head of sales and then head of marketing? Or do you bring in some elements of marketing before? Tell me a little bit about how the marketing and sales play with each other.
1: I do think that you bring marketing in general, and this is a generalization, it's companies different, but mm. almost at the same time that you are bringing the sales on board and it could be a lead generation, but it's content these days is very important. Very important. Mm. It's, it's probably the first step. And even before you build a marketing team, you probably need somebody who does content and it doesn't need to be anybody who is very senior, but somebody who mm. is, creating some awareness around your product, around your business. And it starts also, that is a good way to generate leads. You don't need to have somebody Mm. super experienced to be writing some content around a topic, pushing it through LinkedIn and see what can you generate through that. So I don't Mm. think you need to go very senior on that. You probably need to have some structure in the way you are building that content. And so having somebody who has done this before, because otherwise you are just creating content in general, which yep. without a strategy is probably not great. And it is as important as in the content is the distribution of that content. Absolutely. And so you, while you don't need somebody who is to senior, you definitely need somebody who understands how to push that content into the market to the right people. So you probably need one or or two people who can execute on that a little bit, but you definitely don't need a a CMO, not even a VP marketing to to write some content and to know how to push this into the market. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. What about product marketing? Where does product marketing fit in? As you can tell from the questions I'm asking, I have a bit of a marketing background. So I'm curious how Notion with its 100 portfolio of companies thinks about product marketing in this. It uh, is
1: it, it is uh, funny that you asked me about product marketing because we, uh, personally, I'm very product oriented in terms of the investments that I do. And we can talk about it a little bit later. But uh, many of the companies I personally invest in and I sit on the board are very much product led. And in many cases, they sell through the product. Either they are Mm -hmm. developer first through a bottom up approach or they have strategies in which users can test the products for free and then buy them once they they enjoy those products. For all those, you need product marketing people. And I talk with those product marketing people many times and they are like, you know what? I never thought I was a product marketing person until really I was doing it, but I didn't even know what was that, right? And it it is in that moment where you start realizing that what you are doing is basically telling your users how... Are they using the product? How should they use the product? And using the product itself to do that marketing. And yeah, I think it's, it is not that all the companies need to have a product marketing person. And many companies do product marketing without having somebody called product marketing, at least in serious mm-hmm. But But it is very much needed in products that you know, or in companies that are product-led growth for sure. And they have a bottom-up approach as a go-to-market strategy.
0: I love that. I think that's a really nice way to think about content marketing versus product marketing, mm-hmm. which is something that if you're not in the marketing world, just seems like just a bunch of words. So thank you for that clarification. I want to talk about U.S. expansion because that's another thing you mentioned as something that you see as a pattern with your B2B SaaS companies because it's such a large market and you really need to make it there. When do you typically advise company? to go to the U.S., what are some indicators that say, you know what, you're ready to go to the U.S.?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. All the companies, when we invest, all of them, they ask us about the U.S. expansion. Some of them are ready to go to the U.S. and they want to expand to the U.S., which we love and we can help. Some other ones are wondering whether they are ready to go to the U S and that's a phenomenal question. And we usually tend to introduce them to some of our founders to talk to them and to very much understand whether they are ready or not to go to the U S because I think the worst mistake you could basically do is that go to the U S wait early. either your product is not ready. Yeah. You are not ready to scale. You don't have a clear message. You don't know who is your ideal customer profile and you fail and you will be that company who went to the U S and failed. Hey, we tried it and yeah. we failed and raising service B yeah. saying that is not great. right. So you got to make sure you have that product market fit and you are ready to, to go to the U S. So definitely one is talking to founders who have gone to the US and trying to understand what are those metrics that you need to have in place that basically clarify what do you need to go into the US first. I think that's one of the things. Second, identifying a good strategy specifically for you. Not all the companies Mm. go to the US in the same way. And i give you some examples. So I invested in a company called ULife, which is a life insurance business. And it's just a very regulated industry. And so in the right. UK, they are growing incredibly fast. Obviously, they will go to the US in the future, but they cannot launch in the US if they are not ready from the regulatory perspective to launch in the US. Mm-hmm. Why should they do some marketing if they cannot serve the customers there. So before right. they go into the U.S., they need to be well-suited to get there. As you've seen in our portfolio, we've been very successful with fintech, for example, which is, again, mm. a very regulated industry. So we really make sure that our companies are ready to launch in the U.S. from the regulatory perspective, and they are not going to be caught after they get a little bit of traction and basically having difficulties to deliver. To the customers, because obviously those customers, they are not going to come back if you haven't been able to deliver to them. So I think everyone needs to understand those those steps that they need to to follow to launch in the U.S. And we really try to help our company with that, both internally with our platform team and as well as with some of our founders and looking at the specific sectors and go-to-market strategies, because not all the companies are the same.
0: Yeah, I like that. So basically, you first want to talk to others who have gone to the US successfully and make sure that you are ready to be able to go to the US. And then the second thing you said is, for your sector, for your product, understand what it means to go to the US. Mm -hmm. What are the nuances of selling in the US, which really may differ from how you sell in the UK or to the European market? And make sure you're ready to do that before you pour a lot of money into doing that.
1: Absolutely. And define on that second point and define a very good strategy for you to go into the U.S. How can you hack that internet? And, And you are a marketing person, right? And you know that we can't buy customers. We need to be able to get in and to find those tricks that are going to allow us to get into the U.S., through marketing and through sales. And it's not necessarily that we need three salespeople in San Francisco, which is what most of the yeah. people think hey, yeah, we need these salespeople in San Francisco. Maybe not. Maybe what you need yeah. is some brand awareness first before you even hire salespeople there. You can even serve these people or, or they start targeting some of those leads staying in the UK or wherever you are um, in Europe or, or, or in other places around the world. And then when you, determine that, see where is the best place for you to set up an office. And it will not be San Francisco or even New York. It might be either Atlanta or some people these days are opening offices in other places like Austin or even Boulder in in Denver. So yeah.
0: So you knew that was going to be my next question, Icha. So, So now I'm a company and I've talked to the founders. I'm ready to scale to the US. Talk to me about what's the strategy? Maybe again, take one or two examples from your portfolio of successful entry to the U.S. What did company A do or company B do that you thought was a good way of going to the U.S.?
1: As I said, it's very difficult to generalize. But one of the things that we really believe is that having the founders in the U.S. spending some time there is critical for the success of the company at the very beginning. So having the founders move into the U.S., spending six, eight months there, and uh, trying to understand how they can build a business there, who to hire, moving from one place to another one, and so on, I think that's probably the best way to go. They are the ones who Mm -hmm. need to build that culture. They are the ones who need to hire the initial people there. And I think they are, the best people to do that. So I would probably suggest to the founders to move there. And I know that for some people, it is difficult from the family perspective and so on, but trying to spend three months there, come back and go again and so on. And things move very fast when you move there. So I think you can move things or keep up with that pace that U.S. businesses are used to only if you are there. If you are in Europe, probably yeah. because of the time zones and so on, you are not able to move that
0: fast. How do you think about the competition, though? Because when you were in Europe, the competition was completely different, right? And, and the number of competitors probably is completely different. Absolutely. And so when you go to the U.S., how does a European company need to set itself up to be able to compete in the U.S.
1: And I think it's important that before going to the U.S., as we were talking about, you need to be ready to go there. Position yourself clearly in the market. Mm -hmm. So what is going to be your entry point into the market? Can you reach certain companies or identify a niche of certain companies who are not yet using your competitors, maybe you are able to enter that market. So you build a little bit of brand awareness and then you start reaching out to companies mm-hmm. and start, in fact, replacing in some cases, your competitors, but know exactly why are you better in that market or how are you different? How are you more suitable for those customers that you are targeting? And I think for that, there is a lot of marketing, branding, product positioning, and on, on all of that, definitely.
0: Okay. We started with this incredible go-to-market section, which is so important, but I want to now go back to what probably a lot of people in my audience care about, which is how do I become a Notion portfolio company? What is the process of at Notion Capital for making investment decisions? Can you walk me through a recent investment that you did? How did it come and how did it evolve through to the final stages. Yeah, absolutely. Henley, I can take you through. So uh, this is a
1: pretty standard process, I think, for all venture capitalists. And I think it's important that founders understand how it works so they can know what's the timeline and what to expect. From the investors. So in our case, we get. I don't know. We look at deal flow. Or we talk to founders coming from different sources. One of the main ones is those referrals, and those are introductions. Um, either having an introduction to us through another investor, or through some of our portfolio companies refer us to many phenomenal founders. So sometimes getting um, a referral like that is probably one of the best ways to go. But we do have other of a deal flow that can come from our proprietary technologies where we go and we look at the market and you use we use technologies to identify companies that can be suitable for Notion. And we reach out to them and we talk to them too. But as a founder, I'm not expecting you to be waiting for us to identify you if you really want to talk to Notion. You, you should be able to approach us directly or better even to to get an introduction for, for one of the founders or so on or, or another um, investor. So that's um, probably one of the ways to come into us. We usually look at the companies, do a little bit of due diligence. And once we identify that we want to invest, we bring you in to present to our investment committee. And in general, we involved the whole investment team. We like to involve the whole company and everyone at Notion has a voice and an opinion on those on those presentations so we really take very seriously everybody's feedback on that and we do that right after the presentation so we can go back to the founders and there may be a couple of questions that we want them to to on, And if that is successful, we basically get one agreement on a, on a term sheet. And that's very usually, I mean, you probably have spoken with many VCs these days that the process is happening very quickly these days. So it can be as short as two, three weeks and, and up to, let's say, a month and a half or so maximum. But we should be able to be talking about a term sheet definitely in three weeks or a month. The latest, I would say, is usually less than that. So we move very quickly. We work very close to the founders. And I think the most important part and that we really value is communication. I think it's mm-hmm. very important to communicate with the founders and to tell them where we are so that they know what to expect and they can manage the process accordingly. I think the worst thing that investors can do is basically delay that communication and then it lags and it stays too long and the founders obviously need to move on and focus on building right. their companies, which I think uh, is uh, all the founders are looking for. They don't want to be answering questions from investors forever.
0: I'm sure founders would be very happy to hear that. But look, if a company that approaches you is in your area of focus, B2B, SaaS, you have a thesis already on that problem statement or if there are metrics that ticks all the SaaS metrics for you, it's very easy to make those investment decisions. But how do you make decisions where you don't have those metrics ticked off or where the business is something unusual? Because that's how you're going to find the next Uber and the next Airbnb. They're not going to be a pattern that you know. So what's the process internally when you're confronted with a portfolio company that doesn't Fit your mold. Yes. What do you do? Uh, And that's
1: 99.9% of the cases. If the companies will be at the right, all their metrics will be amazing. They have like great logo acquisition. There is no concentration. ACVs, average contract values are really significant. In fact, there is a good net retention rate, which means customers are expanding their contracts. Customers are not in the same country. In fact, they are All over the world, there is a very good payback period, basically. They acquire customers and very much in five, six months, they get the money back. This is like... This is not happening. I need one of those companies <laughs> okay. you call me, right? Right away, because I want to see it. It's it's something that it is not the common situation to see companies. So we always need to compromise in some of those. And it is a matter of discussing those with the founders. And so I think it is not a bad thing that all the metrics, we are not expecting all those metrics to be absolutely perfect, but it needs to be a trend towards seeing those metrics working on in the future to be able to have good stable ACVs, no churn, good payback periods and then and we are and, and local acquisitions so the growth comes not only from expansion of customers but also new customers start expanding all over the world and things like that. So we need to see a trend and obviously if we see that trend and we get comfortable with that then is when we invest. So it's usually a Conversation with the founders. We like to to call those meetings workshops rather than really a due diligence meeting because it is mm. more of a better understanding. How can we get help companies build those ideal metrics so they can become a 100 million business? And if you talk with the founders and you drop some ideas to make that happen, and founders are excited to explore those ideas. They have their own opinions too, because we like founders who are opinionated, but at the same time, they are willing to try those ideas. Then Mm -hmm. is when we are in and we are excited to invest in those businesses. But let me tell you, there is no no magical formula. And in certain say, there are a lot of things still that we need to work on to make those businesses, yeah, a 50 million plus business and and growing very fast.
0: Do the founders usually know these metrics? Are they like, do they have the systems and the know how to know the SaaS metrics that they need to have the data on for a series A investment with Notion? Or do you find that's something you actually need to help them get? I think
1: SaaS. It is a go-to-market or a business model which has been explored for a while and it's well-known. And there are many benchmarks around SaaS. So we expect the founders, in fact, to know many of those metrics. And we expect the founders, in fact, to tell us, hey, these three metrics is where I am struggling with, and I will love your view on it. And that's absolutely fine. It's not that I'm expecting Mm -hmm. to get those companies to know everything, but at least I want the founders to be aware that not all these metrics are where they should be. And Mm -hmm. and, And I like them to ask me, how did other companies to improve on those metrics and and in some cases, we might be able to explore it at that moment. In some cases, we might need more data to, to go through mm-hmm. that. But yeah, overall, I, I feel I'm expecting the founders to know a little bit of, about SaaS metrics because there are a lot of benchmarks and I, I would encourage the founders who are listening to us, who are building companies in SaaS to go online and to search for SaaS benchmarks. And you will find tons of them and you should be able to cite those while you are presenting them. and That's what it is, yeah.
0: I think it'll be very helpful for founders listening to this podcast to... Get the kinds of metrics of the companies that you invested in the last 12 months. What did they look like? Could you share some data on that?
1: It is difficult to generalize again, because I think the benchmarks are based, for example, in the type of customer you are approaching. So you can be a SaaS business and you can be selling to SMBs, small companies, which they might pay between £25 a month to £1,000 a month on the higher end. And so that gives you a range a year, which is basically less than £500 a month to £12,000 a month. And that's only in the SMB space, right? Or you can go more to the enterprise you are selling to mid-market enterprises where you might start on a 3 to 10 a month, and you can even go up to, in fact, 50,000 a month or even more than that, right? You can get to contracts that are even at a 1 million a year. And that is something that, in the example I gave you before, previously with Unbubble. So I think when we invested in the company, they were serving very small customers, or at least they were asking them to pay too little. Maybe they they were serving large customers, but they were still asking them to pay too little. I think the important part on those benchmarks is to better understand what are the budgets of those customers. What to me is a red flag is when I see a company that is mid-market or enterprise, and they are paying 25 pounds a month or 100 pounds a month, and that is basically a year they are paying 1,000, even 5,000 a year, that's for a company like Barclays, that's peanuts. That makes me feel, yeah. obviously they are not taking seriously this product because a couple of executives go for dinner one night and they are spending 5,000 pounds in a couple of <laughs> bottles of wine so clearly that, that the pricing of that product for that customers is completely unmatched, right? Yep. So the important part is that what the budgets of those customers are. And so in general, smaller customers, I would say, if you can get them to pay 10,000, 12 customers, 12,000 in the SMB space and move in the mid market to more of a 30,000, Even Mm 50,000. And in the enterprise, over 100,000, 200,000. And even as companies in our portfolio, they have 1 million contracts, right? They close 1 million contracts Mm -hmm. with these big enterprises. Those are very relevant. It doesn't mean that you are going to be selling 1 million contracts in your first year of existence. But if you are selling to those big enterprises, then you should be realistic and start charging them over 100,000 or 200,000. And I think that is important for you to understand and to understand who is your audience and how much value can you extract from them because otherwise there is an unmatched. Always think of those, those bottles of wine that they pay for 1000 in those corporates. And and if that is what you are charging for, that's probably Complete Exactly.
0: So the message I'm hearing is, if you're an entrepreneur, you're looking at Notion, understand your metrics. You don't have to have all of that in the ranges that they need to be, but understand why the numbers are what they are And and have some hypothesis on how you can move the numbers to where they need to be if some numbers are not right. But basically, definitely have your numbers and your metrics for SaaS when you approach Notion. Would that
1: be right? For sure. Absolutely. And we like to discuss those. We are SaaS freaks. So we love getting (laughs) in deep into those numbers. Obviously, if we are only SaaS, it is easy for us. So uh, we should be on top of those strategies at Notion for sure.
0: Exactly. Let's zoom out a little bit and talk about Europe as a whole. What are you seeing that's really exciting you in terms of what's happening in Europe? I'm very bullish
1: about Europe. So am I. Uh, Yeah, I think it's a massive (laughs) opportunity. I think we already moved on from those times in which we were going to a conference. And the question was like, why should an investor invest in Europe? And and I don't think we are getting those questions anymore because there is nothing we got to prove now to say that European businesses are growing incredibly fast. There are lots of unicorns and in fact, European funds have outperformed US funds for for the last couple of years, which I think is absolutely phenomenal. And it is not a coincidence that many US funds are looking to European markets to invest and are coming much more into Europe. So Very bullish about Europe. I think the fact that there have been very strong success stories and growth and very fast unicorns in, in, in Europe has created a big pool of talent who right now know how to build very big businesses, how to run businesses. They have what we call the growth mindset. Mm-hmm. And once you have that growth mindset, you can go out, build a business, and it and will be willing to put money in your company. And I think that will is just a flywheel, which is uh, phenomenal. So I'm very bullish about uh, Europe in general. I think there are two main areas that I think European businesses are thriving at the moment. One is, um, I think, fintech. Mm Is huge in Europe. We are based in London, and as they've been very good success stories in the fintech space, even ourselves, we have several fintech companies in our portfolio, which are unicorns starting from TradeShift, which is a Danish business, to GoCarless, which is a UK-based business. And even we could consider them Paddle, which is also in our portfolio, which is a business Mm -hmm. that helps SaaS companies basically build the whole recurring revenue and charge for it, which is also Mm -hmm. partly fintech. It's also based in London. So we have three fintech companies, unicorns in our portfolio only. So I'm very bullish about it. And I really think there is a lot to do there. And second I think the area that I've been talking a lot about recently, which is product-led growth, which is this go-to-market strategy for SaaS businesses in which Mm. businesses buy software through the product itself. Think of companies like Pipedrive, which is an Estonian company for a CRM. So in the past businesses, when they were willing to get a CRM, they were going to Salesforce, but there are many businesses for which Salesforce is way too big and too complicated. So what about you can go take your credit card and start using a a CRM, which is much more SMB focused. And I'm very enthusiastic about this topic um, in Europe because it's European market is, is built by many small SMBs who are much more technology savvy these days and they are willing to use those technologies and they don't need a salesperson to to come through yeah. the door with a tie, basically yeah. give them a pitch for an hour, but they can go to the website and buy the, the, the software. So I think these two areas are very strong. There are many other ones, obviously, but I'm very enthusiastic about those for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I do think that this product-led growth and and the ability to scale using the internet rather than enterprise sales force is a really sweet spot for Europe. And then they can do so much just sitting in Europe and don't have to worry about the fragmentation and putting people in all these different places with different languages if they're able to do it more with a marketing-led approach initially. Correct. Okay, excellent. We've come to the end of the formal part of the podcast. I'm having such a good time. I could go on for a much longer time, Ichasu, but I'm going to stop and and ask you a bit more about you as a person and and some of the things you like. And I usually start with what's your favorite book? Any that you recommend that you've read recently that made an impact on you, maybe doesn't have to be nonfiction or entrepreneurship oriented, just anything that you like.
1: So, in fact, I am very passionate about health. And for those who 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 know me, and I'm very a big believer of the what is called the circadian cycles, which is basically yes. our body works when the sun is out and and yes. we should go to a sleep when the sun is not out. And I know we don't do it, but uh, but we should. And so there is a book by a professor at the Salk Institute in San Diego and the book is called the Korean Code and basically helps people to stay healthier just by changing our habits in terms of the time. It's not as much as how much we eat, but about when do we eat it? And obviously it's important how much we sleep, but also when do we sleep? Because we can, just as an extreme example, if you think of people who are working at night shifts, they are having always problems in the future. And that is because they don't leave when the sun is out. Yeah. And and so I'm very enthusiastic about this Circadian Code. Sachin Panda has a new book out at the moment, which is about improving and and the sleep cycles. And I'm very passionate about that. And probably I would recommend anyone to to read those books to to stay healthier and much more productive in in our lives.
0: Thank you so much for that recommendation because. My mom actually has had issues with sleep. She used to sleep mm. very well. And then recently, and it got triggered actually by jet lag. Mm. She came to visit me from San Francisco to London and her circadian couldn't adjust, especially because there was no sun for the 10 days she was here. So I'm really interested in this topic. Absolutely. And I'll definitely pick up this book. Sounds really interesting. So thank you for that recommendation. What about
1: your favorite European city? It is probably uh, the city I'm, I come from. So I am from the north of Spain. Um, I'm from a town that uh, within the region of this city called San Sebastian. And it is just uh, oh, in, the, in the boundary with France. And to be very honest, I would probably say that it's a, a phenomenal city to have some a beach. You have also some mountains. Food, yes. <laughs> Food is out of scope. It's incredibly good, very healthy. We have a Great summer. We have rainy winters too, but it's probably my favorite city in Europe for sure.
0: (laughs) It's on my list of places to go. Hopefully now that this COVID thing is, you know, winding down, we'll make it this year to to San Sebastian. You should. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What about a productivity tip or hack or tool? Something that you do or use that keeps you really productive?
1: So I am, I am very methodic, very methodic in terms of times, timings, and what keeps me more productive is to work out every morning. I wake Mm. up early and I have a good workout, which clears my mind that I do anything from running to boxing, to spinning, to anything, but I don't miss it any morning. I do it every single morning and I think it's very important to keep your brain clear and to align with, with your body and keep going right And and give you, gives you energy to be productive.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it connects with your other interest on this, the circadian clock that we have. Correct. Okay. So my last question, I'm going to ask you, if you didn't have to work at Notion, what would you do? What? If you could start a movement to change something or further a cause, what would it be and why? Yeah,
1: definitely. As I say, I'm very passionate about health and I would love to, to help people live their healthier lives. And I think there is very little education around it. Mm. So people don't do the right things in many cases because they don't know it. And, uh, and I think there is a lot of bad information on the internet. People go, they don't know what to trust. And I think I would love to spend time. Specifically, I think if, if you think of the most disadvantaged choose, parts of the populations are the most unhealthy ones. And in fact, they get access to the lower cost foods, which guess what? You can get to at McDonald's for one pound. So, hey, but with one pound, you can also get very healthy foods. And and the problem is there is very little information about it and very little access to it. So I would would definitely spend time trying to help people uh, live healthier lives by providing more education and and more structure to the lives of these people, for sure.
0: Sounds amazing. And I think... Maybe you can do it even through Notion with your areas of focus. Ichazo, so thank you so much for being on this podcast with me. I really enjoyed our conversation and um, I look forward to coming and seeing you maybe in San Sebastian and having a meal with you.
1: I would love that. If you are going, definitely ask me for recommendations because I have a ton of those. I would love to,
0: okay. to give you some. Okay, <laughs> But email is definitely on the way. Anyway, thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building.